Welcome to episode 113 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson. Brian is in Tahoe still because we record these on the weekend and it's still the same day. I've been literally recording this in like five minutes after the last one. This episode, we had Jeff Smith. He's a designer at Facebook and previously ThoughtBot and a bunch of other places. Super, super talented guy. We've gotten to know him over a while. We immediately knew we had to have him on because we have a ton of fun with him and he's like crazy smart. We got to hang out for a little while and chat about all sorts of stuff. A lot of his history, a bunch of little technical things, which were really fun. 1X, pixel density, things like that, which are near and dear to my own heart. So it's a super fun show. But before we get into it, I uh, want to thank Dropbox and Wayno for sponsoring this episode. Dropbox is the simplest way to work the way you want. Uh, whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, really anything. You could be recording music, you can be recording podcasts, you can be writing lists, you can like really anything that is a file you can store in Dropbox and it will sync it across all your devices and you can just work the way you want to work or play the way you want to play and it'll just take care of the rest. When you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone fast just by sending a link and their commenting feature gives people a central place to post their thoughts. That way conversations can happen right alongside the work itself. Dropbox gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose and you can check it out and get started at dropbox.com. Thanks once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor, some of our favorite people on the planet, Wayno. Couldn't be more thankful for having them work with us. Describe themselves as the all-dancing, all-singing, fast-growing, not-quite-bourgeois, not-quite-bohemian, full-service digital agency. They're super rad. That's all that really matters, I think. But they're basically sponsoring the podcast because they listen to it, they like it, they think it's worth having, and they just want to support us and keep us making stuff. But also, they're hiring. They have a world-class team. They have really rad human beings there. Everyone I met from that team has been so amazing, and I couldn't recommend working for another company more. They're truly incredible. They do really incredible work for amazing companies. Uh, They've worked for people like Airbnb, Medium, Lonely Planet, Google, Reuters, Fitbit, Dropbox, uh, Red Bull, Cisco, among many others. Seriously, if you look at their dribble, their work is really next level. They do such great work and they're somehow so amazing as human beings, which you don't always find that. I'm pretty stoked to be friends with them. They have offices in San Francisco, Iceland, and now New York, and they need to fill out those spots. So you should definitely reach out to them. Go to wayno.co, hit the jobs link, and let them know you came from us. So thanks once again to Wayno. And with that, let's get to episode 113 with Jeff Smith. Um, yeah, I'm Jeff Smith. I am a designer at Facebook. Um, I have been, I don't know, how else do you characterize yourself? I'm, I'm a designer. You snowboard? I do. You're a good snowboarder. Mm. A shrouper, I would even venture to say. <laughs> you know, shrouping is still not a, a word. Yeah, it's, it is. It's, it's like it's like Frindle. Do you guys remember that book when you were kids? Nope. No. Frindle. Oh, wow. Is that is that a thing? Uh, it is. Uh, I, I've, I've dropped this reference before and people didn't pick up on it, so... I think I might be alone. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's probably us, not Jeff. something we want to talk about. <laughs> ah, friend um, Well, to be honest, Shroup is in Urban Dictionary. Is it really? Which is a dictionary of sorts. Therefore, I count it. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh. <laughs> someone used it. No, no, seriously. Someone used Shroup in a conversation the other day. And I was like, Brian Lovin, his tentacles, his like little linguistic. Oh, I'm spreading it. Yeah, you're I, just getting I feel like there was a text from either Brian or his roommate, Matt. That said something about shrouping the gnar, and I was like, Obviously. none of this is English anymore. <laughs> Shroup the gnar, dude. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we've shrouped together many a time. That mm-hmm. means snowboard for all of you people who speak English. Actually, it doesn't. Um, to shroup is to do something uh, in an intense and adventurous and exciting way. Like, let's go shroup. Like, let's go hit the mountain. We've, you know? we've been using shroup in a myriad different ways. Um, one of those being like rock climbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doing one's laundry, yes. those those sorts. Doing of, one's laundry, those kinds of yes, intense. I, I'm no uh, etymologist, but uh-huh. I believe the word does have close ties to ski and snow culture. Um, <laughs> however, we have ventured outside of that in yeah, our in yeah. our day to day use. You'd think it would be a combination of shred and alp. It, it does. It does <laughs> I have. I don't want to pull up the definition now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mean the urban definition? Shroud. The act of shredding and ripping at the same time, whether you're on a skateboard, surfboard, or snowboard, it doesn't matter as long as you shrelp. 
They there you use go. the word Proof. in the definition. So you know Friend, that someone smart that. It's on wrote the internet. It. Yeah. It's on the internet, man. But now we can move on. So mm-hmm. uh, you're a designer at Facebook. I'm a designer at Facebook. Uh, let's back up. Hmm. Where'd this all start? Where Where did Jeff personified begin? <laughs> you know, Besides it's funny. having the hardest name in the world. <laughs> where did Jeff become personified? I know. I know. <laughs> right? It's such a ch- it's such a challenge. So my name is Jeff Smith. It's like You're, it's like my parents Jeff just, Matthew Smith. Jeff Matthew Smith. Oh my parents God! <laughs> went to the English. They should have said generic. Smith. I emphasize English <laughs> because they chose an English with a capital E dictionary. Picked out three three random words. And associate well, two random words and associated with a Smith, <laughs> and have made it next to impossible for me to have like any sort of established internet identity beyond Jeff personified. Or and I even I've talked to people about this, like how do you procure a better Twitter handle? And you procure uh, a better name. Yeah, apparently <laughs> I'm the artist formerly known as uh, <laughs> Jeff Smith. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know. Yeah, eventually that'll change. I'm actually really curious if um, the URLs, if I ever change my Twitter handle from Jeff Personified to something shorter, if I ever work at, at Twitter, talk to Jack, um, <laughs> and work, pull some strings and get a shorter Twitter handle, like what happens That's to all those tweets. a key reason to want to go to Twitter. You know, I bet you could get like Jeff Schraub. You know, I probably could. <laughs> I don't think I want to like tether myself <laughs> to a word that is uh, of hey, upcoming popularity. Yeah. Esteemed word. Yeah. <laughs> We're just trying to get the hey word man, out it there. It just tells right you that now. you shred and rip at the same time. I can't. It needs to be obscure to be cute, to be cool. And yeah. if I associate myself with it, it obviously will lose that quality. I so, agree. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Where are you from? Uh, I'm from <laughs> um, a little town called Shroupington. <laughs> oh. Cool. So I uh, I grew up in New Mexico, which is uh, crazy. Yeah. Well, I there I am sure no you guys one grew have, up there. Yeah, it's a random <laughs> place. Breaking Bad is like the only thing that ties popular culture to where I grew up, <laughs> and it's actually very. It's a really really interesting place from the, from an arts perspective. Um, Santa Fe and everything else is like it's really cool. Um, Brian's parents are super into New Mexico. Your oh really? From, your dad's from there? Oh that's yeah, my dad's right. from there. Yeah. yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, my grandparents are there. We used to go there a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, so you know, you know, it's it's just a weird place. And so I grew up there, and I moved to Grand Rapids when I was like nine. Grand so about Rapids, Michigan. Okay, because there's one Michigan. in Minnesota too. That's right. And you're from you're from Minnesota, right? Yeah. So I moved to Michigan after New Mexico, and you kind of have these polar worlds, right? Trump just won in Michigan, and in New Mexico, I don't even know if people vote, right? It's like <laughs> it's like very like they're very different cultures. I'm kidding, obviously. There are plenty of people. I'm I, I love New Mexico. Um, <laughs> if anyone's but, from New Mexico, Jeff, then no offense. Please keep listening. <laughs> none whatsoever. Um, but they're very polar, and so you go to the frozen tundra that is Michigan, and it's so dramatically different than than New Mexico. Um, and so actually to go back to your original question of where, where I came from, a big part of my growing up was being involved in the arts. So I did um, fine arts like oil painting, pastels, and all that stuff since I was a little kid, And um, which I think is kind of unique, right? Like I was four or five and doing charcoal and stuff and going yeah. to like pretty, pretty rigorous <laughs> classes for that. And when I moved to Michigan- Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Was that- uh, self-induced, like you found you found that you were interested in that at a young age, or were your parents like you're going to be an artist? Damn it, self-induced <laughs> I paint. I don't know any parent that's like you're going to be an artist, right? It's like you're going to be a doctor. God damn or, it! <laughs> you will go to art school and make this family proud. We're going to spend two hundred thousand dollars in your education. You're going to like it. You know? um, I yeah. So it was more me. I just loved. I loved drawing stuff. I would always. Uh, I. I mean, yeah, there's some funny stories. I can remember I draw dinosaurs. Like every phase of my childhood was like demarcated by my drawing a different type of whatever that phase was, whether it was like Power Rangers mm. or uh, Dragon Ball Z. Oh, yeah. That was, yeah. That was a little bit more That mature, was my entire you know? phase. <laughs> yeah. you'd, gr- you'd really grown up by then. Yeah, I'd matured <laughs> a significant degree at that point. Um, my, art, my aesthetic styling had improved dramatically. Um, I, uh, yeah, so like I would draw stuff and I always, I was like this really perfectionistic kid. So I draw a dinosaur and it wouldn't turn out exactly how I want it to be. And I crumple up the paper and have a temper tantrum. And it was that I have these like really acute memories of that. But, um, yeah, my parents were really, I really supportive of me doing whatever I wanted to do. And they really early on put me into these art programs, um, with like artists who I like look back and it's, 
you know, really impressive who, who those people were that I was like, I guess I, I was like a five-year-old, so I'm not like studying, but like, it's I guess pretty hard from. to like appreciate people when they like, when you're that young, right? Yeah, completely, completely. Um, so anyway, like when I moved to Grand Rapids, it was, yeah, the polar opposite. Um, it's Midwest and, uh, it was, yeah, it was a really interesting experience for me. So I think a part of me that was so tied to the arts kind of, um, dwindled there. That's where I got into snowboarding, um, which is ironic as well, because snowboarding is not, Michigan is not necessarily associated with it, but some of the best, like Gene Ross, right? Yeah. The snowboarder that we all know. Yeah. Is, uh, uh, ben Johnson as well. Yeah, Ben Johnson. I guess he used to ride pro, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, both of them did. They were actually, oh, man. which is funny, their, their studio or the, the agency that they were both a part of, it's like everyone who worked there is this fantastic snowboarder. And literally, I grew up riding and learning how to snowboard on a landfill. So this is like the exact opposite of like massive mountain. They would kind of, surf Lake Superior. Yeah, it's shocking. You, what? I guess you can do that. I've never done that. Uh, <laughs> I didn't learn learn to surf till I came to California. Ugh, ugh, yeah. Okay. Have you been? Have you? Do you guys? Have you guys gone surfing much? I have been surfing, mm -hmm. but I have not surfed. If that makes any sense. No, that makes sense. Okay. He shrouds the sitting. Yeah, I rather the ocean shroud. I him. laid on my board and <laughs> yes, then like he's been shrouded. Sometimes I'd sit up on it like all the other surfers uh -huh. and like kind of lean back in the water and be like, you know, look Yo, around stuff. Then people would come be like, Check it. "Yo, hit this wave!" And I'd be mm -hmm. like, <laughs> "For sure, <laughs> for sure, guys." Oh, oh, oh it passed. I wasn't. I wasn't <laughs> yeah, I can't surf. Yeah, to save my life. <laughs> Some, you know, it's actually fun. Sometimes just going out there and getting thrashed is not a bad experience. It's like huh. to go to go back to the zen. It's a zen getting kind thrashed. Of experience. Go it? back to the zen by hitting your head on the bottom. Yeah, or something like those lines. Yeah, forced zen. Yeah, <laughs> you will fucking be zen. Damn it! <laughs> Again, glass half full. Glass half full. Ocean um, half full. Anyway, so yeah, Grand Rapids, and then when did you push your first pixel? Coming from a, a fine arts background. You know what? It's funny. So like in high school, I started doing some, like I, I, the fine art thing continued and I got involved in a little, little bit of graphic design and I hated Photoshop. Um, in fact, I think that that's still uh, an aspect of my personality. It's just a, a real disdain for, for Photoshop as a program. <laughs> um, you get chills. Uh, yeah. I, I, re I really didn't like it when I first used it and kind of pushed off the entire digital thing. I had this thing where I thought the fine arts were the most, you know, prestigious. Pre yeah, exactly. That was the like form of art. And I was going to participate in that, um, which is funny. So when I looked at like going to colleges, I was looking at a bunch of programs like RISD and um, yeah, like U of M w w back in my state and uh, was going to go for fine art. And it's funny, I ended up going to a small liberal arts school instead. And it's funny looking back because had I gone to art school, I don't know if I'd be where I'm at right now because I feel like my career in product design is a really good fit for my personality and the range of things I'm interested in. Um, and, but if I'd gone to art school, I probably would have just gotten completely invested in oil painting and I would be you know, pursuing that, which isn't at all a bad thing, but a very different path than where I'm at now. Absolutely. So what, what happened? What do you think the new path sort of opened up for you. <laughs> yeah. So I think, I think the, the vast majority of it came from when you, you know, graduating, I studied philosophy of all things. So I went to school for fine art, um, at this liberal arts school and the program was pretty bad. So I bailed and went to philosophy instead, uh, and got my existential on throughout college, which was rad. <laughs> like there were uh, titles, got, got my existential on. Yeah. I <laughs> pondered my place in the universe yeah. and I started, uh, designing websites. Sites. You know, I'm happy I got it out of my way early. Yeah. You know? <laughs> at least I'm not not having those crises like at 30. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so I, I after college really got involved in, in tech specifically, um, both learning to code and doing front end design. What? Um, Why? I was really interested in entrepreneurial stuff. So I moved out to the Bay Area without really a job. I just kind of drove Did out it. here in my Honda. Um I actually, yeah, I was in Colorado for that little bit as a whitewater rafting guide immediately after college trying to figure out, figure my shit out. And that then, was part of the existential yeah, phase. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and then I moved to, to San Francisco, just packed it into my Honda and uh, like hustled, quote unquote, to get into the startup scene. That's and, Bryn's favorite word, actually. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you love it. Mm, no. Yeah. But we do recognize that hustled, the, the concept exists. So what'd you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> He conned uh, people. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, um, I guess it's, it doesn't feel far from it in some ways. But you you talked, I, yeah, I ended up getting a job with a startup and doing um, kind of everything, but front end development and design, design, and then front end development became what I did. Uh, and continued doing that freelance until I started where I was working for an agency after, um, I don't know, maybe a year of doing that. Did you basically start like doing that design work at that time? Yeah, more or less. I, I, I think I realized at that point in time that I had a, like that my visual skill set aligned pretty well with the business needs of, of tech companies out here. Um, Interesting. Wait, wait. Break that down. Your visual sure. skill set coming like so from a fine arts background, right? So yeah, the the fine art, the fine art aspect, so the aesthetics of it. of, mm-hmm. of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think it's in yeah. If you're if you have a visual eye, that certainly applies to what we do with pixels. Um, I'm actually it's always surprising to me. I think there's like this real dramatic uh, discrepancy between between fine artists and graphic designers. Um, but I think that that I still applies for both. And so for me, it was pretty straightforward to pick up, you know, designing comps and mocks. And uh, yeah, especially for a startup that was just trying to move as quickly as possible. What about some of the other harder stuff? How did you land a role doing web development after just a year of freelancing and figuring this out yourself? So I did do, I did do one of those coding programs. Um, and this is years ago. So it was like when it just had just begun. And that was a big part of my getting over the, the learning curve of, of front end development. Um, and I think that was a, it, that was a really great experience in that it, it gave me a deep appreciation for the medium we work in. Um, I also really realized that that's not where I wanted to work most of the time. But after having gone through that, I had a a strong enough understanding that I could get into uh, this small agency at the time. And then that was acquired by GoPro. So that was sort of this massive shift in in scope of projects I was working on and the size of company and everything else. So you were swallowed into GoPro. Yeah, exactly. What was that like? Um, It was fascinating. You come in one day and you don't really, at least in our experience, we didn't anticipate anything happening. Um, We just had this big all hands that we're going to be a part of. And you come in one day and they say, hey, we're getting acquired by GoPro. And GoPro had been a massive percentage of our business uh, up until that point. So I don't think it was a terrible surprise to us, but you're still sort of shell-shocked. When you go and apply for jobs in places, you kind of anticipate your life looking a particular way with that company. And with GoPro, it's like a dramatic change, um, which was great for me having this snowboard and extreme sports background. It was really like really exciting. I think one of the best perks was like the pro deals that came out of that. So <laughs> you could get pretty much any outdoor equipment you wanted to like half off. Um, but that was a pretty big change in my career because at that point I had been, I think surface level, thinking about design in a pretty shallow way, um, both implementation of design and visual design don't necessarily, I think, get at the core of what, you know, what you're trying to do and the problems you're trying to solve. And it was my manager at GoPro who really pushed me to think beyond where I was with, with design. Um, if that makes sense. Uh, it makes sense for us, but like, I think maybe unbundled. What do you mean? Like going beyond the surface level? Okay. So I can remember one, one, the float label pattern that came out, right? There is, this is something that MDS did where you type into an input and that lay the label that sits in the input floats above the text field. Yep. Right. And we came out focus. Was that on focus? So when you focus, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. On focus, it goes above the text field. And I remember being completely into that. Right. And I would, that was like, the end all be all of design for me. It was this really elegantly designed solution. solution. And then uh, it was pretty beautiful too. And so I would then take that and apply it to everything, which is like completely missing the point of design in in that I wasn't taking into account uh, the users that we were designing for and the people problems that that are there. Um, I was kind of always trying to push something that was like visually rich uh, but missing the whole point of what we were trying to do. I mean, that sounds a little extreme. I don't think I was completely polar in that way but it did take a really great manager to say to acknowledge where my skill sets were and that was really validating but to also acknowledge where i had a lot a lot of room to grow do you remember what that conversation was like yeah i really i uh so one person i don't know if you guys have had her here but vanessa cho is she that conversation was 
I, I remember it really well. We sat down in this pho shop and pho is a form of noodle that I was not aware existed until I moved to California. And we, uh, she pulled out like a napkin and said, so this is where I, well, I, she asked me to draw out my strengths. And she, I think she had on that spectrum, technical skills, UX skills, UI skills, and uh, visual design chops, and then maybe some product thinking in there as well. So like four or five different um, axes that you could like evaluate yourself upon. And I placed myself pretty mediocre, well, like somewhere in the middle on all of those. And then she took it and was like, well, I think you're really strong in these two areas, visual design and uh, execution, like implementation, but you have a lot of room to grow here. And that was a really, I think it was, I don't know if it was a really hard conversation because I had a lot of respect for, for her at the time, but it opened my eyes to the, uh, what I just hadn't noticed up until that point. Um, so for a, a lot of my career after that is, has been like filling in those gaps yeah, um, so and what, intentionally what, doing that. What changed? How did you start filling in those gaps? Cause I, I that's a very common thing yeah, that I think we yeah. hear from a lot of people is like, I think I can do yeah, the visuals, but how the hell do I learn product thinking? Uh, especially as in your case, you were at a product company, but in mm-hmm. a lot of people's cases, it's I'm freelancing or I'm going to school. Yeah, completely. I think, so I think actually sometimes working at a product company isn't always the best thing for your product thinking because f- at least in my experience, iteration has been the way that I've learned the most. Mm-hmm. So completely like, redoing a product over and over and over again. Um, I think consultancies are actually a pretty good way of doing that where a startup comes in, they say, we we need to build this as quickly as possible. And you have to, with a limited budget and time, build a product like an MVV, M- MVP for them. And that I think, taught me some of those things around product so you can you know appreciate where a product manager is coming from or maybe even not even a product manager but a, a founder who may have even more pressure and less understanding of the you know the technology we're working with um, so yeah it's it's a hard thing to say I, I think the first step is acknowledging the problem and then you can as, as long as you can name it and identify it <laughs> yeah 12 step process exactly or something um, like that. Yeah. you can start working against it. But if you don't know it's there, then um, then it's really hard to change. And that's, I, I, I think, again, when you think about the, the people who've remarkably changed your career, and for me, they're, they're people, right? There aren't necessarily events, but people who have those conversations with you. And uh, that's when that kind of change and development happens. So for me, uh, development has been so tightly tied to people. Um, your um, personal development. My personal, wait, personal, yes. More professional. Well, I'm saying your development versus like front end development. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. My website's got yeah. so sick after that. <laughs> yeah. um, I think a big part of it for me too was leaving GoPro. So when I mentioned a product company that was, you know, obviously it was a product company building a great product, but I didn't have the opportunity to really push against the boundaries um, and do that iteration that I wanted to do. And so I ended up joining a company called Thoughtbotter, an agency uh, that does a lot of, that fits pretty well with my background and my skill set of doing excellent product thinking, but also doing um, really strong engineering and development. And that for me was that sort of learning learning ground of iterating on a lot of different things and being looked at for for product leadership. And and it was, yeah, it was pretty, pretty, pretty interesting in that regard. How did you end up at Thoughtbot? Um, one of the guys from GoPro actually just left and then poached me from, from GoPro. So that was, <laughs> that was it. He was also my skiing. It's funny that skiing and snowboarding is this like motif right now, but it, he, he and I would go riding together and the chairlift is a yeah. very isolated place, uh, <laughs> to have that kind of conversation. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, thought was great. I was only there for, I don't know, nine months. And then a recruiter reached out to me from Facebook and, the rest is history. I think for me, Facebook was the ideal company to end up at. Um, I learned at that time about as much as I could on my own or with a small team of people and being in a larger group of people with like harder, harder problems um, was like the, the, the best thing for me going forward. So you've been at Facebook for nine months. Yeah, something like that. Which is like, feels like it has, it ha- really hasn't been that long, right? That's a short amount of time. But when you look at the number of people that, uh, are new relative to to yourself. It's pretty crazy. Like I guess the company, well, especially is right now, you're going to have a lot of those, right? Like they've been hiring like crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I guess you don't really realize it, but then you you know you meet new people and um, 
it's a one it's one of those things you'll say like what what per, i guess what percentage are you or something something like those lines it's uh i am the one percent <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy if you've been there for yeah not yeah. too long you get they're hiring like crazy yeah they are what changed when you you got into the big company the onboarding process, I think, was a big part of that, too, where there was an open allocation. So you got to join Facebook without being allocated to a team. And then you get to go around for about three weeks or two weeks, meeting different teams, managers on those teams, which I think there's a lot to be said about that process. Um, but I got to meet Jeff, Jeff Tien, and Newsfeed felt like... So when I talk like talk about learning and throwing myself in the deep end and being a part of a big company and a big a big team, Newsfeed felt like the best place to be for, uh, you know, the product is what, like 11 or 12 years old. Um, maybe not that, not quite that old, but yeah, it's like the oldest product it's I've ever worked on. Yeah. And then there are a lot of people using it and the constraints that come with that are pretty substantial metrics, so many metric driven decisions that happen. And that th- it, they're, I hesitate to say that they're not, they're certainly design constraints. Um, but there are a different type of design constraint than I've ever ever had before. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So before for me, user testing meant going into a lab and seeing how people used your product. And qualitative testing is a fantastic way of getting that. Uh, and of course, we've all we've heard of like A/B testing and, and quantitative testing. But at the scale that Facebook functions you can't really do qualitative testing around a product that's shipping in Brazil or in Saudi Arabia or you know other, any other place in the world, right? Japan has a very different way of using emojis than Americans do. And so I think using qualitative da- or quantitative data is a really core part of validating product decisions at that scale. Yeah, so I th- that's been a, a tremendous learning experience. And, and working with the people that, some of the guys I work with, guys and gals I work with are so incredibly sharp and far more talented than I am when it comes to uh, that sort of micro, those micro iterations around design and changes that will boost metrics, you know, in- incremental values. And it's, it's pretty interesting to, to learn and be engaged with. On top of Newsfeed, you also did those devices, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The devices project. (laughs) This is probably how a lot of people are coming to be more familiar with Facebook design, honestly. Uh, That's, you you think? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There have, man, I could so gladly like endorse it if everything was at 1x. I mean, (laughs) we should talk about that, by the way. Yeah, we we can definitely talk about that. Um, So when I joined Newsfeed, iOS 9 came out. And Jeff Tian at his previous company, Tian Lax, had become pretty well known for doing iOS nine or iOS GUIs. That when I was learning how to do design, it was tremendous, right? Yes. Like yep. that's yes. how I learned how to do iOS development or design. Hugely valuable resource. Exactly. You follow and mimic the the masters, quote unquote. If you know, if Apple's that. And you learn from that, and then you can do your own designs, and you slowly branch out from that. So it's not only just a really great tool for business, like business value, where you can put together a comp really, really quickly, but it was a great like pedagogical instrument for me. So when Jeff brought that up, we we were I think just out to like grab a beer, and I asked if I could be a part of that or help out with that. And so when iOS nine came out, he he said, you know, do you want to lead this? And so that's kind of how it began. We you post internally asking if anyone wants to get involved and there are a bunch of people who volunteered. And so for like two weeks, we, we hammered away most of the, most of the time after work on the UI kit that we released. And with that, we realized there are a couple other projects that have been going on internally. One being the hands kit by Julius Tarn. The what skip? The hands kit, hands kit. Hands kit. Okay. I'll, I'll, so hands kit was a, so I, I know what it is. I'll, I'll put a link to, to that in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> um, it's so funny when you're so close to it. It's like, oh yeah, Handskit. Um, Handskit was a bunch, uh, a bunch of diverse hands that have been photo like taken. Uh, photographs have been taken of a bunch of diverse hands, and it's then an cropped with to devices. Picture of Casey's hand, Gabriel Valdivia. Like Casey's hand is everywhere. I see Casey's hand on billboards because he put up this triple shot a long time ago of Casey's hand holding a phone and made it a PSD that you could like drop oh, really? devices on. Yeah. Oh, interesting. There used to be a billboard like right out here on the like right before the Bay Bridge that had Casey's hand on it. Interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, anyway, Julius had been working on this project internally and I can't remember if it had or I think it had been released at that point 
and we aligned it with what we were doing. So design resources at Facebook was really initially just going to be this iOS 9 GUI. And we realized we could build out a microsite and, or actually not just a microsite, but a full site. And we've been doing that since. And so I think the project for us is continually asking how we can provide better tools for designers to do their jobs better and faster. Let me, yeah, I don't mean to cut you off too hard there because you're had a thought, but why, why is Facebook doing that? Can you talk about a little bit about the ethos behind, like, why is Facebook responsible for, for putting this into the world? Well, I don't don't think it's a responsibility thing so much as it's a desire to give back. Um, Hiring. Yeah, (laughs) I guess there's, there is certainly that too. You know, the more you are established for the discipline you're working in, that definitely has benefit for the company. But yeah, I think there are a ton of reasons. There are personal reasons, right? Sometimes at Facebook, working on projects that are like projects I'm on right now that are month-long projects, if not more than that, can it takes it takes a while. So some of these side projects end up being a place where you can ship and you know work with other designers. So there's a personal reason for that. But the other is like giving back, I think is a big, big component of it. Uh, for a lot of us, and we've had I've had separate conversations around this with a bunch of different people, but we all feel that same kind of thing. Like we're all learning from these resources and it's this cool cycle to be giving it giving back to the community. I should say with this, before you cut me off again, Brian. Uh <laughs> boom. I'm kidding. I'm gonna have to cut you off there. <laughs> uh it's it's so collaborative, right? There's so many different designers at Facebook who've worked on those different devices and the UI kit, uh, dozens, right? And it's one of the few places where at a large company, without a lot of structure, we've been able to self-assemble and work together and collaborate. Um, A lot of us are learning on the process. So some people came in without a lot of experience with Sketch. I, again, not being a big fan of Photoshop, was forced to do some Photoshop work too. And it's, it's just a really good education process for ourselves, but it's also a really great place to work with other designers and kind of cross-pollinate. So people from the business side who would rarely really work with people from maybe newsfeed or interfaces would be able to, these are different teams, by the way, at Facebook, but would be able to work together. And I, I think that's kind of one of the most compelling parts of what we're what doing. What do you think made that possible? Because there's you know the exact number, but a ton of designers that actually worked mm-hmm. on this. How the hell do you keep that organized and in sync and schedule that and roadmap that? And I mean, it's basically yeah. a product you're launching. Mm-hmm. How did you manage to make it so successful when you're every single person working on that has other main responsibilities? They work in different buildings. I think you mentioned that it's, it's some of its product management, a lot of its project management and putting yourself out there and asking if people want to be involved. And, and, you know, generally people, I'm always actually kind of surprised when it's like, Hey, do you want to help out with this? So one example, I was like on vacation and we were, we had a cut for a bunch of devices and I've been the one who is typically cleaning them up and getting them ready for release. And it was this remarkable. And I think this is like a management shift where you realize there's somebody else who could do this work, who would be willing to do it. You just have to ask and, uh, would do it at a great, like really high quality, that that sort of thing. And so I think there are a lot of management skills that you learn through the process of, of organizing something like that. Um, you launched the last batch right before we went to Epicurrence, right? Yeah. So that's actually what I'm referring to. So Epicurrence, I was at Epicurrence for the, like the second to last one and a designer, the third one. Or yeah. Epicurrence three. Oh yeah. I was thinking in terms of what we released. Mm-hmm. So we did a, se- like oh, a series it. of got releases. It. So it's like the second to last release. Well, that and, happened to be the second to last epic occurrence. Yeah. At least for now. Yeah. I, we can talk about that. That's, that's heavy, that's some heavy stuff. It was a sad day. Um, I didn't, so I, can we, we can do a tangent, right? Sure. Yeah. That's the, na- that's the name of the game. That's, that's how this rolls. A, a tangent. We're, oh, yeah, we're going to come. There's a little bit of danger involved in the tangent. Is it? <laughs> well, oh, a Dan Petty with tangent. A, with, a, with two ends. I'm picking up what you're laying down. <laughs> that was let's, yeah, uh, above my head. Let's tangent and we'll come back to the, your release cycle because mm-hmm. that was that mm-hmm. was unique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, I, I hadn't heard about this until I saw a Twitter post by Jeff actually about it. So I wonder if he, he intentionally broke that news. I don't know. I believe so. Um, I'm curious. I would figure that if Dan wasn't going to do it himself, Jeff would be the one he would ask to do it. But, I mean, Dan provided a huge thing in making Epicurrence happen like four times. Oh, he did, yeah. Those I things think, were such production, and he did it by himself. 
in most cases. Dan gave up his life for the last year to make those possible. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Dan, uh, I've known Dan for uh, like even I think before I was really in design and I, he clearly just cares about human beings. Mm-hmm. It's not, I think design is something that he's really good at. And but it's more or less like conduit for him to give back to be to around people. other humans. Like, yeah, yeah. And you in all of the events from Epicurrence to Montus, you just see a guy who's really poured his heart and soul into these events. And I I'm optimistic that it's not the end. Uh, I know he had been working to make it uh, something that was like commercially uh, sustainable, viable. Yeah, yeah. viable. But there's no reason you can't get a bunch of friends into the mountains and go snowboarding who happen to be all be designers and take time off. It doesn't always have to be in insane houses. Yeah, yeah. With or, you tons know, it could, of could be an Airbnb, beer. but it, yeah, it, it, I think that, I think the spirit of the Montu's epicurrence, the epicurrence will live on. I for think, a long time. yeah, I, I think the same thing. He's put a bug into the community mm-hmm. in a way that will continue on for a while. Yeah. I think what is interesting is when you go to these events, you realize there are all these people who have the same, maybe not all the people have the same set of interests, but you realize a couple of the people do and at a deep level. So there's some like deep friendships that come from that. But being, I think you mentioned this before, being on a a ski lift is like a very different place to be than being in a like convention center, right? With a name tag. And so sitting, sitting next to somebody in that kind of environment is so uh, different. Yeah. Yeah. Real, like, authentic human stuff goes on. That was a good tangent. Mm-hmm. That's like the tagline for Epicurrence. Real, authentic human stuff. <laughs> yeah. Real, authentic human stuff. Trademark. <laughs> yeah. It was, it was really, it was really good. And I, I think, like you said, some, that, that uh, bug has been placed in a lot of people's ears. Yeah. It's going to be. He, he did four of those in a year. What a release cycle. That four is, in a is, year. That is mind blowing to me. Yeah, it really was the first epic occurrence was this time last March year. March 8th. Mm-hmm. So speaking of release cycles, uh, what we were talking about before this was you guys actually did all the design resources in pretty incremental steps, like very planned out and cyclical. So yeah. tell me a little bit about like, how you guys scoped that out, I guess. Well, so the first one was more or less just a really scr- small group of people or like 12 people who got together and did that first iOS 9 GUI as quickly as possible, got it out there, got into the world. And I think for all of us, it was it was great to move as quickly as we did on that. I think it's pretty remarkable that at most companies, that would have taken a lot more time to, to, to build out something like that for a big company. Um, and we did really quickly. And so I think that was enough to move us forward in towards doing other things. Um, devices seems like a pretty good fit. And yeah, there's some really exciting things that we're looking forward to releasing in the future. I think the way that we've thought about tools for designers or, uh, yeah, resources for designers has been very much like tooling focused. And there's a lot of stuff that we'd love to release around that. Yeah, I mean, um, you got you got a Diverse Hands built into Origami and Framer, right? Yeah. That was an announcement mm-hmm. a month ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're going to do a couple more of those. But then there's also things like writing and that I think if you think about TN Lax again, their case studies, those were really good resources when I was thinking about how do I do a case study? How do I tell a story about a product? All of that's really valuable, especially again, when you're thinking not just in terms of pixels, but like what's the higher level thing that we're trying to do here as designers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that stuff's pretty exciting. Can we talk about pixels for a second and answer Bryn's long-standing qualm with Facebook's iOS kit? Oh. 1X, 2X, you guys went with 2X. Uh Uh-huh. Why? I I don't think it's going to be as intelligent a conversation as as you want (laughs) it to be, Bryn. I ask Jeff TN this question every time I get around him. Uh Okay, so uh, 1X yet? Hmm? He's like, no, we we made a decision, but I can't remember why. <laughs> I think if you look at the people, the designers of Facebook, half of us design at 1x and half of us design at 2x. Um, there might even be a, I don't know the percentages Are the 2Xers there. And half PS? of us design at 3x. Yeah. Are the 2Xers in Photoshop? Sketch. What is that? Are the 2Xers in Photoshop? Because uh, in no, Sketch, I, it's I like can't, against I have no your idea. best. I have no idea. Interests. 
So the, <laughs> these fucking Facebook designers don't know what they're doing, man. Like, what are they no, even doing? So if you, it's it's really straightforward. If you're that designing sarcasm, for, if you're designing for Preach. like iOS nine specifically, you take screenshots of the app and you build the components around that. It's really easy if you have it at two x. You can also scale them goes, down by fifty percent and build them at one x and scale not them up automatically. That. I think if we did, <laughs> I think if we did an update, we'd probably do it at 1x, especially if Apple releases something at 3x where it no longer becomes easy to scale up and down the different uh, devices you're working for or the, the screens and you UIs mean true you're working 3x, for. Like not, not the 6 pluses scaled down 3x. Yeah, if they actually did like a pure 3 like Android 3x. For gotcha. what it's worth, it is certainly easier to do the iOS kit at 2x because Apple's own measurements are almost always odd numbers and <laughs> it's just a, the biggest pain in the ass. Like I went through and recreated most of that UI at 1x and uh-huh. it's just like ridiculous. You like fight Apple the whole way. I think we yeah. complained about this on Monday, Apple's measurements for things. It's like 13s and 15s and there, 27s and 29s. When you actually get in there and start recreating the elements, and this is not, shouldn't be surprising because there's a layer between one design, like those designers and us as designers, and mm-hmm. it's like the implementation. So it shouldn't be surprising that there's some odd values and things going on there, but it was always really surprising to see uh, how things were exactly aligned and the font sizes, that sort of thing. But yeah, completely. Twitter, the Twitter profile photo is 51.5 points, 103 pixels square. How do you square. know that? Because I measured it. <laughs> Bryn's, Bryn's writing about this. Ah, interesting. He's writing a post. But first, I'm complaining about it everywhere I can. You know, it's funny. We have this <laughs> raise, example of like... Raise awareness. We huh? have this way of thinking about process that it's this sort of cleaned up and polished thing. But I, I would imagine the vast majority of things that we use day in and day out have been designed in a process that's like <laughs> far more... Remove like far removed from that. You know, you're you're moving quickly and you gotta ship it. Yeah, you don't necessarily get a chance to evaluate everything pixel for pixel. So somebody implements something at fifty one and a half. Maybe that hey, maybe that's like an Easter egg for for him or her. Yeah. (laughs) That's an Easter egg. They also didn't pixel fit any of the the first person to discover. (laughs) Bryn's the only person to discover this at this point. Maybe not. I don't I don't know. Maybe you win something, Bryn. By knowing that Twitter doesn't do pixel alignment. Or something. They don't do pixel alignment. This is a big, big claim. They don't do it at all. They don't do it in their action icons on iOS 9 for iPhone 6. Hmm. Which I would assume is their biggest Covering single phone. Covering your ass phone. on that specificity. I like it. I'm, <laughs> I would bet that's their biggest phone. And the fact that they're not aligned there drives me insane. That does bring up a really interesting point, something that we've dealt with at Facebook and what we tried to do with devices, right? Because we've been trying to design resources that aren't just for designers in the Bay Area around the iPhone 6S Plus or 6S or 6S Plus. Mm-hmm. It's like, how can we create devices that are relevant to people in the developing world um, in other other places? And that's it's not only just something it's not only something about giving back to the community and um the altruism, I guess, that goes, goes along with that. But it's more about, like, a part of it is also uh, an, an exercise, at least for me, around empathy and, you know, actually wrestling with the fact that, you know, there's so many other people out there in this world that are so removed from the, the context I have. Um, so it's, it's just interesting. Like, you can call, like, the specific values of that, that device. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's so often what we're designing for. But Working on this iOS kit. Mm-hmm. With Jeff Tehan, <laughs> was that tough? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, well, I wouldn't say it was, from Jeff to Jeff. <laughs> there is the Jeff a funny name thing. Been yeah, yes. he again has a more unique name than I do. This is it kills me. Tehan um, is a great unique name. I know. GT. What a lucky dude. At GT. <laughs> Grand touring. Gran Turismo. <laughs> yeah, which is I, Grand touring in Italian. Yeah, I chose the Italian version. <laughs> Because I'm slightly more cultured. <laughs> I, no. Shall peace to Brian Lovin. Fuck. I don't know what that means. I don't know what it means either. I said shralp in a fancy way. Shralpista. Instead of being a shralper, you're a shralpiste. 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 No, that's actually the French-Italian definition of shralp. Okay, anyway. How'd you know that? God damn it. study abroad? <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I, I think I think the imposter syndrome that comes along with, well, it's actually uh, similar to like how you f- I feel most of the time working at, at, at Facebook or any large company for that, for that mm-hmm. matter. You have the decisions you're making have a big like impact and it sometimes feels really, 
inadequate doing that. Um, like, why am I doing this? Who, who am I to be doing this? And I think that very signal imposter syndrome in and of itself is a really good sign that you're doing the right things. Because if you're not in those sorts of places, and if you're not feeling like you're out of place, or you're not going to, you're not going to make it, or uh, how, who am I to be here, then you're not putting yourself in the right place. Like not taking enough risk or how so? Like, sometimes I feel like I'm just, like, in the groove and I'm like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be at this time because I'm just fucking going. Yeah. Like, I feel a little bit the opposite there. So, that's, that's an no, interesting No, it's interesting. Take. Wait, so can you describe that a little bit more? Basically, like, if I feel like, I, like I'm a gear, uh-huh. right? And suddenly I start going really well. Uh-huh. That means I'm in the right groove. Uh-huh. Right? So, in this metaphor. Yeah, sure. <laughs> but I don't feel like, if I feel uncomfortable, I feel like I'm, like pushing against something in maybe a not ideal way. But maybe even, I should reevaluate. Even if you're in the groove, right? Even if you're doing what you're really good at, you always want to be progressing and pushing oh, a little bit forward. So I think, yeah, what I'm describing is a bit more in like social, so, like a social context. Um, but I do think that that's like pretty tied to how you grow in your career is putting yourself out there and taking risks. And it doesn't necessarily need to be with people. Mm-hmm. It could just be in the work that you're posting to Dribble or to, uh, yeah, the, the app you're building that feels like you're taking a risk and you're putting yourself out there. Um, I guess imposter syndrome isn't the right way to describe that. But I do think imposter syndrome in and of itself is typically when you get in the that sphere of professionals that you want to, you're just in this, a sphere of people that you're around impactful. people that are yeah. going to like improve you if you feel like you have to live, live up to them. Yeah, kind of thing. I think if you know all the answers to the questions that come up at the job you're working at, that's a sign that you need to like find some harder next higher level problems. Mm-hmm. And that seems like what moves you into. If this you feeling, know the answers to everything, do you even have a problem? You are a god. <laughs> if you know all, uh, but I, th- then I think Kanye. That's, that's the point. Is like people feel get bored like going through the motions and i think that actually even maybe relates to to what you're saying bryn uh i think workflow zen is probably a different thing but at a career level you don't want to be a gear spinning smoothly in place for too long um i think there is a way to to move up and and not uh or to move forward and and change and solve different problems spin other gears you know if that i mean that makes sense a gear that's moving well that has a like a good uh ratio on it is mm-hmm. actually like really fast like crazy fast just want to say that this metaphor is hard <laughs> yeah it, imposter syndrome may not be the right way to describe it but the idea or the act of putting yourself into new circumstances whether yeah whatever that looks like in certain social circumstances it's imposter syndrome and with okay. from a design standpoint it's taking, I guess it's taking risks, but I think imposter syndrome for a lot of the people I know is like a very common feeling, mm-hmm. especially as you're oh, starting totally. to progress in your career. And that's been something that I've shied away from. And I think it in fact should be something that we sort of embrace, maybe in, isn't the right word, but acknowledge is like a, actually a good thing, you know, a good sign that you're, you're taking risks. I agree a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've had some really, really good managers. And I'm Mm -hmm. wondering if you've talked to them about this kind of stuff and advice they've given you about dealing with imposter syndrome, kind of keeping that in check or using it to your advantage. I don't think I've ever talked to somebody about that specifically to a manager. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't, I guess maybe I should or something along those lines. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think. Hey, Jeff, catch you in our next one-on-one, man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have our our topic to talk about. Um, I... I think, yeah, for me. Why not? Why is it that we have It's kind of a scary topic to bring up to someone that is your manager, right? To talk about being feeling an imposter? To, to talk about feeling, feeling like you're, right? like you're not good. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, want yeah. To, you want them to trust that you're good and can solve yeah. problems. Yeah. I think actually that's a, really, that's a really good question. So I haven't necessarily found that in every manager I've had. I think the really good managers make you feel comfortable and make you feel like you're part of their team, like they're they're on your team and they're helping support you. And uh, you don't need to necessarily posture with them. So having a conversation around you're feeling like you're posturing or you feel like you're an imposter is like a really, again, a healthy, probably a really healthy thing with, with the managers you're working with. I don't think I've ever talked about that particular subject. But the very best ones, you can say, I'm, you know, I'm really struggling with this and get feedback from them on that. 
There's one thing I know about you, Jeff, uh-huh. and that's that you think really deeply about management. Mm-hmm. At least that's been a topic on on your mind recently. I know you and I have mm-hmm. have brought it up in the past, and I'm curious, especially given at Facebook that there is this track from IC to manager that yeah. is an option. What are you thinking? Would you ever want to go into something like that? So, first of all, I think it's really interesting that a company acknowledges the difference between designers and between individual contributors and people who think in terms of pixels and execution and who are really good at that and managers as different tracks, but at the same uh, in the same way. So you can progress in your career without necessarily it needing still is to go a hierarchy. Management. Yeah. You just but within each thing. Like there's a there's a track. Yeah. Yeah. Within each. Yeah, and that vertical. was something I'd never experienced before until until Facebook. I think for me personally, the level, like the amount of impact you can have with working with people, is just really personally fulfilling. And I find myself losing track of time more when I'm working with people than when I actually do the pixel work. And I think that's an interesting gauge for me personally as to what I what I enjoy doing and and acknowledging that, and not necessarily. I think again, I feel like it, the tendency is to see it as a negative thing as opposed to embracing it and saying, you know, this is actually something I'm good at. I'm in gear to use Bryn's analogy, and uh, yeah, for me that personally feel it feels good. Um, and I know a lot of people. I follow a lot of people on Twitter who really dislike management and associating management with the d- design and I th- yeah I wish that wasn't the case in fact I w- I wish more designers had more of those soft skills such that, that we could think about design at a higher level than just in terms of execution I think that'd be really really beneficial for the design community as a whole where it's not just about what can I do visually, but it's about how I can think about a product at a really high level and how I can sell that product idea through to a company and see it come to being. Um, do you, you think know, the that, soft skills that go with management about yeah working with people? And I, I tend to agree with you. I'm wondering uh, if that's a natural evolution to go from pixels to product to yeah to thinking about the natural people. Natural in terms of companies often making that decision or natural in terms of designers being good managers i think it's natural in the terms of designers getting better and increasing their understanding of the craft and of Mm -hmm. the value of design over time so i think i think that visuals are held on a pedestal at at an early age and i Mm -hmm. think you are have admitted to that and i certainly admit to that that visuals used to be really compelling to me like i want to build beautiful things Mm -hmm. things that are visually stunning Mm -hmm. Um, and then as you get more experience and you start to work at other companies, it sort of progresses along. All right, now let's let's think about the problem solving in the product and, and the people problems that we're solving for. Are you saying only visual or you move away from visual? No, I think you come I think to understand that easier. a visual is is a very small piece of design rather than being design itself. Yeah. So I, anyways, the, the whole question no, was I th- like... I think it's a really good question. The design's right? a, a design industry is growing, right? So yeah. we have every year, it's it's more and more younger designers, which mm-hmm. maybe is why we see a lot of people focusing on on visual right now. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's not bad. No, not visual's, at all. Do we good. see a lot of people focusing on visual right now? Uh, yeah, I would say. I think, Brian, you bring up a good point where as you develop as a designer you have to learn the craft. Like you have to know to execute how to execute well so that you, it almost comes down to your medium, right? You have to have practiced enough to know the medium such that you can do like more interesting things with it, whether that be actually executing or it's helping other people execute and bring them up through that same path. You can't really do either without having done the hard work of gone through that. But it is what you're saying. It seems like a pretty natural progression where you imitate and emulate and then progress to building your own sort of yeah. style. I, I do want to make sure and clarify that I'm not disparaging people who self-identify as visual designers because I think visual is an important piece of what mm-hmm. we do. Mm-hmm. Um, you're, you're referring to generalist designers, product designers. Yeah. I think we're just having like one side of a conversation that so often, well, yeah, it's really easy to get kind of engaged with visual design and like Dribble is a great example where there's some excellent visual designers out there and I think that's a pretty easy thing to talk about and we it's the first thing you notice when you look at it exactly thing. is this beautiful you know yeah. people I've seen people kind of shit on this 100 days of UI challenge or whatever that mm-hmm. seems to be going on all the time um, 
But I read just one statement kind of changed my mind on it. And it was someone that was promoting this 100 days of UI. Mm -hmm. And the description was, get the visual side of your skill set better. That was Mm -hmm. it. It was like, we're not teaching you to become a designer. This isn't to become a better designer. It's to increase the visual vertical. So you're not supposed to work on any UX of these UIs. You're just supposed to be like straight up like, hey, make a pretty UI. It is one pixel of white. This is pure. It and goes it back. Beautiful. I think maybe that's the point. It's like it's a it's a fucking dribbling exercise in basketball. Like uh-huh. that's not how you win games by dribbling <laughs> really dribbling well. Dribbling exercise. <laughs> See, the metaphor is on point. Uh, <laughs> you don't do that spider thing. All but the you time. know, basketball camps used to be yeah, the spider dribbles and dribbling two balls at once, and obviously that will never happen in a game. You're never going to ship some of this visual stuff. But it gets you good. It gets you fast at moving pixels. It gets you fast at understanding white space and alignment. I, I kind of, I buy that. I haven't done it. I buy, I buy people that want to increase their understanding of the visual side. What, what do you think the critique is of the UI challenge? What, <laughs> is, what is the issue with the UI challenge? That is a great question. Because visuals are way more subjective. Right? I think there's generally a critique of surface level design. Yeah, like if you're designing something that's just a, a thin veneer, like yeah. we can all go to Ikea and acknowledge that Ikea produces very cheap furniture that's great Kanye, when you're in college. Kanye acknowledged this today, actually. Oh, did he really? You didn't see? Wasn't oh. it yesterday? Was it yesterday? It doesn't matter. <laughs> Kanye went some... to Ikea for the first time and had his mind blown, dude. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I totally I wish we, I wish I had that it tweet. It wasn't for had, the first yeah. time. It, Dude. He, he talks about going to Ikea to get a bed in like, uh, I think it, it's one of the last songs he, he on one of his He tweeted about albums. it like it was the first time he'd had a soda or something. Like, oh my God, like I knew it was out there, but I never tried it. <laughs> Holy shit. Soda? Really? Dude, I, you know, sometimes thinking on the spot isn't my strong suit. But yeah, I don't know what the critique for, for that well, would I be. I think that's exactly the thing. These people are thinking on the spot. They have to get it done like really fast so they can do a hundred days of it. Like yeah. they don't have time to think about making up business needs. They don't have time to think about actual problems to solve. They're just like, this is what it is at surface level. So that's what I'm going to make is a surface level product. That's that's, that's a huge critique. That's okay, right? The it's point fine. is it's an exercise. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's an exercise. As long but as the it's critique qualified. Is, it's, it's not going to be deep. It's not going to be like a full-fledged product. Either way, I mean, I think it's hard to critique somebody for like trying to grow when you it goes back to the napkin, right? If you have... You know, five or diff- six different axes that you want to like develop on as a person. You can't. You can't. Knock this isn't critique. To... This is like bashing, though, right? Like yeah, people oh, are yeah, just bashing. Sure. Yeah. Critique is nuanced and it has value. Like mm-hmm. I haven't seen a lot of UI challenge bashing. Like if I look at UI challenges, the comment section is typically that's great. Look at that, fantastic. Nice, nice colors. colors. Yeah, yes. <laughs> we get it. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, I actually, I think it's great. Like if you want to build out your portfolio, it seems like a really good way to do that. I don't know why people wouldn't always try and Like if if the goal is to get better and someone has a format that they think will help, try it. Sure. Yeah. As long as they That's understand great. it's getting better in a very specific subset of My the design problem, skill. Depending on how they approach it, it could be more than that. Sure. It doesn't matter. Sure, yeah. My problem with the UI challenge is there's just no way I would have been able to get through that. Like a hundred days of doing these micro designs, I just don't. I don't have the. That I sort try of focus. and piece together all the things that I would rather do in a hundred days, uh-huh. and not, like we're gonna go skiing this weekend. Yeah, boom! I'm out of the hundred day challenge. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so props to props to those folks who've done the UI, yeah. UI challenge. We're out of time. Are we really? We are. Wow! Look at that. Jeez, crazy, huh? <laughs> we are out of time. Thanks, Thanks Jeff. Has been great. Plug before you go. Ah, mm. Jeff personified on Twitter. Jeff personified on Twitter. You got some devices the out there. there. We got devices. We have more things coming your way. That's design.facebook.com. Design.facebook.com. This, and, is, uh, uh, this is what they call uh, building anticipation. Ooh. Yeah, so we, we have a lot of new, exciting things coming down the pike, which should be exciting, both on the Facebook side and on the design.facebook.com side. So um, be on the lookout for that. Dun, dun, dun. Boom. Thanks for coming, man. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. Thanks a lot. That was episode 113. Thanks so much to Jeff for coming and hanging out with us. I really liked that episode. And if you have great feedback for him, you should definitely reach out to him. That'll be really funny. Uh, Hit him up on Twitter. He's at Jeff Personified, which we mentioned a bajillion times in the episode. We'll have him back on. We're going to do a roundtable with him soon. Before we go... Just want to thank our sponsors for this episode. Again, that's Dropbox. Dropbox is a file syncing service that lets you work the way you want 
on any file with any device from wherever you are and with anyone you choose. So you can just start working on awesome stuff. Get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor, as always, Wayno. Wayno are just such an amazing team and they're hiring for a bunch of roles in Reykjavik, Iceland, New York City, and San Francisco. There's front-end developer roles, creative director, product designer, interactive art director, design intern. There's roles for all levels of capability in design and front-end work. So you should definitely reach out to them. Just go to their careers page, wayno.co slash careers, and let them know you came from us. We can't possibly recommend that team any higher. They are truly incredible, and we love working with them. So hit them up wayno.co slash careers and let them know you came from us thank you once again to wayno for sponsoring the show and we'll see you next week